Thanks for listening to this podcast of Trending with Timory from the Relevant Radio app. Anything you share in terms of episodes, whether it's texting it to a friend, posting on social media, helps to build up the kingdom for God to help confront the challenging issues we face as a culture, but with joy, with hope, and with an eternal perspective where our faith collides with everyday life, bringing eternal principles to help us live our life joyfully. So, what's trending? Bridging your Catholic faith with your everyday life. You're listening to Trending with Timory on Relevant Radio. We are right here a week away from Good Friday, about to enter into the last week of Lent. We'll be stepping into Holy Week, and with Holy Week, we'll start with Palm Sunday, and then we'll have the Triduum. If you've never celebrated the Triduum, I'm so grateful growing up. This was something that was at the heart of our family going into Easter. We went to Holy Thursday Mass. We went to uh, stations, usually outside, weather permitting, on Friday at 3, the time of the death of Christ. Uh, We would go to Good Friday um, service, the veneration of the cross. It's the only day in the whole world where there's no um, consecration of our Lord Jesus Christ uh, in the Holy Eucharist. When you receive the Eucharist on Good Friday, uh, those are pre-consecrated hosts. Our Lord's presence has been waiting for you to receive him uh, since the prior day. It's such a special time. And then if you have the opportunity, I know it's difficult with young kids. You know, my parents always did it with young kids. Um, But going to a Holy Saturday Mass, that vigil Mass, where you start outside, you process into the church with candles. The whole church is lit up only by candlelight, and it's not until the reading of the gospel that the whole church comes to life in the lighting of the church as we celebrate the glorious resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And what better way to do that than centering around the Eucharist and going to Mass? That's how you live liturgically. So we're about to enter into a very special week here. And um, next week, if you didn't know this, uh, Father Rocky will be preaching a special uh, Lenten mission uh, as we are in Holy Week journey with him. So I won't be live next week. You can keep an eye on the podcast. We'll be sharing some content there, uh, relevantradio.com forward slash trending. Today, I want to prepare us for coming out of Lent, though. Um, I know it's so easy to think about Lent as that one time of the year where we actually do the Catholic stuff we should do or make an attempt in general at growing in our life. So I want to talk about moving out of the Lenten sacrifices that we've entered into or maybe desired to do and failed at. It happens to the best of us. And talk about maintaining change after Lent and into the Easter season. And joining me to discuss this today is Sister Tina Alfieri. She specializes in addiction, especially sexual addiction. She is a hermited nun and a spiritual director, giving a candid a psychotherapy approach rooted in sound Catholic principles. Sister Tina, welcome back to Trending. Thank you. God bless you. So nice of you to invite me again. Sister Tina, it's always a joy to have you because I really do say you're the sister that gives us a good kick in the pants when it comes to (laughs) growth and making the changes we need to make in life. Uh, So let's talk about this. We're moving into Holy Week this Sunday and out of the Lenten season, and I find it fascinating that this is like the 
New Year's resolution practically for Catholics <laughs> and these 40 days where we try to make changes and then all of a sudden we flop after that. And just a good example is maybe you do a great job. During Lent, you gave up social media, you gave up YouTube, maybe you gave up memes or alcohol, whatever it is, or maybe you started praying daily prayer and then Lent's over and boom, it's back to the social media overuse. You're binge watching YouTube videos and all these things happen and things kind of just fall apart and you don't pick it up again until next year. Sister Tina, what needs to change to continue to make changes in our lives beyond Lent? I think one of the things to keep in mind is um, not to overdo it. So in Lent, many people do take on lots of uh, practices or penances or various observances and fasts. And for 40 days, I think many people can maintain that. But it's very difficult to maintain all of that beyond 40 days. So I like to say, let's keep it simple and pick one or two practices instead of all of them. Um, just pick one or two practices that you can implement in your daily or weekly life. If you have um, not been going to daily mass uh, prior to Lent, but now at Lent you're going to daily mass, great. How about if you can't make it to daily mass every day, you make a plan to at least make it on Fridays as a penitential observance, mm, get up early, that. go to daily mass. So there are ways to work this in. It really is about being gentle with ourselves um, because there's nothing more that the evil one likes than to overload us with things that are seemingly good, very good, but yet we get exhausted we can't continue, we fall into despair, and then we don't do any of them. And that's not how we progress. We progress by the love of God, His grace, the Holy Spirit, and very small steps. It, it's perseverance. The grace of perseverance, the um, virtue of perseverance, this is a marathon and it's a marathon that run over a lifetime, not just 40 days. What are some practices, Sister Tina, that you would recommend as you transition out of Lent and into the new you that hopefully <laughs> shirked off some sin, got rid of some bad habits, and continue with those good practices? What what can we do? You know, should we sit down with a piece of paper and say, okay, these are the things I'm still working on. You know, these are the days I'm still going to Mass. What will help us to set the intention when seemingly the intention of Lent is gone? So I think the basics, it's always good to start with the basics, living a good Catholic life. The basics are, am I spending time every day in prayer, even 10 minutes a day? That is a basic Christian Catholic concept is to be in spiritual communion with our Lord, with our Savior to tell him that we love him, to hear from him that he loves us. And I think that this is one of the best practices if we're not even staying in communication with our Lord. That's, that's it's going to make it very difficult to have a relationship. You know, a spiritual relationship is two-way. I have to put in some time 
to communicate. And I also have to then have some time and silence to listen and to receive. So I think one of the basic places to start is prayer. I also think another basic place to start is some type of spiritual reading. There are so many classics in the Catholic world, Imitation of Christ, the works of St. John of the Cross, the works of St. Teresa of Avila, St. Bonaventure, uh, I mean, many great doctors of the church. And we don't have to sit down and say, I'm going to read a book a week. I think it's prudent to read 15 or 20 minutes two or three times a week. Again, start slow, make it doable, and make it enjoyable. And spiritual reading helps to edify us. It does help to move us towards the love of God and to wanting to continue um, to move towards him and to make progress. It's like a constant little vitamin in a way to do spiritual reading. I know many uh, religious orders, religious congregations have it in their rule uh, that they will engage in spiritual reading several times a week. Mm -hmm. It is very important. And again, making it small bits, 15, 20 minutes, you don't have to sit down and read for an hour at a time. It makes it very doable. I like that, especially 15 to 20 minutes, because I think so many people are intimidated by reading. I know I've often um, been told for years, you know, just read two to four pages a day, you know, and you'll read, you know, a handful of books throughout the year, even if you just do that as a baseline. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the reality is, is that if we don't make time for it, if we don't plan for it, if we don't set those intentions, they won't happen. I think that's why we are somewhat um, effective during Lent by the grace of God <laughs> is we set the intentions. We have a plan. We know we're doing this for 40 days. But like you said, if you're going to daily mass during Lent, decide what days you'll still go to daily mass after. Maybe it's Friday. I know for me, I really try. I used to always go to daily mass with one and now two children. It's kind of depending on what's going mm -hmm. on with everyone um, and how much sleep we got that night, more prudent <laughs> to not go. And so trying to make that baseline commitment of for me, you know, trying to go Monday, Wednesday, Friday. And that's kind of my mm -hmm. baseline of where I'm trying to hit those goals. Um, and that's where we're at. We're asking sometimes to Sister Tina, I find um, I have to ask God, okay, God, I have the desire to go there. Please help make it happen. Keep that desire on my heart to pray, to go to Mass, to read, you know, the works of St. Teresa of Avila or St. John of the Cross, as you're talking about, which, by the way, total geek out moment. I was at a Cloister <laughs> Carmelite convent a couple months ago, and I found like an 80-year-old full giant book of the works of St. John of the Cross that the Carmelite sisters had decided to give away and they just had this giveaway pile to which I was oh drooling over. So I'm really <laughs> excited to go and read that because I forgot about it during the move and I, I need to pick that back up. Uh, Sister Tina, let's talk a little bit more. And by the way, if you're just joining us, that's Sister Tina Alfieri. She is a addiction specialist, a therapist, a hermit, a therapist, a hermit and nun. Um, she is here to give you advice, whatever questions you may have. Lent, not Lent, addiction. Numbers one eight 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 nine one four nine one four nine. Sister Tina, I'd like to talk about a few virtues here that I think are really important, um, at least to me, in transitioning out of Lent and still having that 
quote, growth mindset as the secular culture has, but especially with regard to growing in our faith, which changes everything. And those in particular, you mentioned perseverance, but I would say um, moderation, temperance, and prudence as well, Um, especially prudence. I think Mm. we've lost prudential judgment uh, in our modern day culture. And Um, Our conscience, you know, is a part of what is formed and sometimes just pondering what prudence is, is helpful. I think uh, prudence, you know, even just thinking about St. Augustine, who defined it as prudence is a knowledge of what to seek and what to avoid. And it's simple as that, but I don't think we get this today. So what might be an exercise in growing in prudence as maybe someone transitions back into using social media, YouTube, or drinking alcohol again? Yeah, and... uh Wonderful question. Wonderful example as well. You know, what you had shared uh, about um, having children and maybe not being able to go to daily mass as much as maybe you might like because of the care of the children. Wonderful example of the virtue of prudence. Prudence does help us to uh, do that which is possible, but it is to help us to grow. It's not to uh, make us feel bad. Uh, when we start f- falling into those negative feelings or experiences, we can be sure that that's the evil one whispering in our ear to bring us down. So I think it's vital and important to have a good spiritual director to talk about any penances or observances that you might want to take on in your life, because according to your state in life, as St. Francis de Sales encourages, according to the state in life, that's going to have some kind of play in how much we take on. And again, that's the virtue of prudence. How much do I take on? And these are things to talk over with and to have discussions with a very good spiritual director who you can open up your thoughts and ideas to, open up your heart to, and they will help to guide you into understanding your current situation in life, how much uh, penance or uh, changes in your life uh, would be practical so that we don't fall into the sin of pride where we may get exasperated with ourselves that I'm not keeping up with my observances. Mm. Look, we're, we're human. We are not angels. <laughs> we need a savior. We're going to fall. It's inevitable. We're only human. We're, we're not anything more than that. So we have to really have this realistic expectation that my love of God propels me to want to improve and to do better, but not to beat myself up or let the evil one come in and sneak in through the sin of pride that if I do have a fall or I don't um, carry out all of my observances that I had wanted to, that I don't beat myself up. I only say, God, Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me a sinner. And the way that we develop virtue is by getting up and going again after a fall. Mm -hmm. That's what virtue is. Virtue is a constant turning again towards Jesus. 
I was just thinking too about what you were talking about with falling and just struggling or kind of how do Mm -hmm. we reconsecrate and reset those things we're trying to change. And for me, it's really interesting. So when I first made my consecration to the Blessed Virgin Mary, um, I start uh, right around when Lent is ending usually just about or toward the end of Lent uh, because I make it on May 13th, Our Lady of Fatima. Mm -hmm. And so Mm -hmm. I always find that I go right from Lent into that consecration to Our Lady. And same with the consecration to St. Joseph, that preparation. Mm -hmm. Uh, We made it May 1st, which is St. Joseph the Worker. And so what I was thinking when you were talking about falling or struggling, if we've consecrated our lives to the intercessory prayers of St. Joseph, of the Blessed Virgin Mary, I find that extremely helpful in letting go of the ownership, right, and pride of our lives and mistakes and the challenges and saying, okay, I've consecrated my life to you. You know, as we're trying to stay in a state of grace, let's abandon these desires, these intentions of growth, everything we have, and reset. So if you're not consecrated to Our Lady and or even St. Joseph, I highly recommend it. It might be something mm-hmm. good to do in transitioning out of Lent. And um, we have some great feast days coming up. I think if you consecrate to yourself to Our Lady on the Feast Day of Our Lady of Fatima, you do a 33-day preparation, and that would actually begin the day after Easter on April 10th. So just something to ponder uh, doing, mm-hmm. Sister Tina. Um prudence. So let's talk for a moment about moderation. I was thinking about this, especially with regard to alcohol, for example. Uh, Some people give up alcohol for Lent or YouTube or all these different things. Can you um, maybe give a definition definition of moderation in a faith-filled perspective? And then let's talk about some examples to work on it. I think moderation is using a um, object or uh, good for a practical reason and not having any ill effects afterwards. Mm. Think about food. We need food, but if we indulge in food, if we eat too much, we feel bad afterwards. If we're not eating the right things, we might feel weak or lightheaded. If we're eating too much sugar, uh, we might feel sedated, (laughs) go into that carb coma. Um, So I think moderation is about using the things that we have been given by God, but using them in a practical way that it doesn't result in negative consequences for us. Mm. Alcohol. Uh, Alcohol is neither good nor bad. It's alcohol. However, some people have very negative consequences as a result of its use. Right. And for that reason, they should take a look at that. Maybe if they can cut down, cut down. If they are having trouble with cutting down, uh, maybe total abstinence altogether if it's come to the point of an addiction. The mm. same thing with social media. Social media is neither bad nor good. It has some fantastic um, evangelization uh aspects to it. It's great to get the word out, um, to put events on the internet. Uh, So it has some very good aspects Mm -hmm. to it. But when its use is causing us consequences, we stayed up too late looking at movies or gaming. And then the next day we're tired for work, we're tired for school. uh, We're not getting our assignments done, our tasks done. Uh, our chores done at home, 
those are negative consequences. And so that means that something's out of kilter. It doesn't mean we cut it out altogether, but it does mean that if we're having negative consequences, then we're missing on that exercising the virtue of moderation. And I keep thinking about things or food, everything. Um, they're tools. And I think mm -hmm. sometimes we seek out different things uh, for themselves. So like even, for example, you know, moderating alcohol, for example, uh, moderation would be seen perhaps alcohol as a tool, not as something to indulge in just as a vehicle in and of itself to just, I mean, lose yourself in. So like, for example, alcohol can be used in a way to help in merrymaking, right? Enjoying a mm -hmm. good time. Um, mm -hmm. But it can be used in the wrong way if it becomes the catalyst itself um, and you're no longer the engine. And the engine Correct. becomes the alcohol. The engine becomes the fun, rather it being a tool in the process. And I think that's where moderation enters in, whether it be social media, how much makeup we wear. You know, mm -hmm. I think a lot of things that we give up during Lent, we could apply kind of that analogy in the same way, a tool versus a vehicle in and of itself for fun. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I really like the concepts that you're using. Um, the thing, you know, God has given us all that we need. And again, everything God has made is good. However, we are human. <laughs> we have a fallen nature. We're very adept at twisting things uh, to where they become hazardous or dangerous for us. Um, the evil one also can intervene in our lives to make those uh, same good things uh, not so good for us. And so it does take um, prudence moderation. And again, if someone is questioning uh, their use of anything, social media, uh, gaming, alcohol, food, these are places to start with a good spiritual director to meet with them and to say, look, I think I'm, I'm wondering prudently how to uh, get a hold of these. I don't want to bite off more than I can chew, so to speak, and <laughs> make a pun. You know, I don't want to try to take on too much to where I get exasperated in my lack of progress. Or maybe I need a spiritual director to check me on that. Because again, getting exasperated due to lack of progress, that's falling into the uh, sin of pride. Um, again, Good spiritual direction is always a place to start with this. And I'll just throw out there a neat prayer that I think it touches on a lot of those virtues that we need uh, coming out of Lent, continuing to grow. There's a prayer uh, to St. Dymphna for prudence. She's known as a patron saint of prudence. And her prayer, the prayer to her intercession, talks about all these important things of confession, spiritual direction, temptation. Uh, it's such a great prayer. We'll post it on social media. Uh, it might be one to write down, to memorize. I, I miss that tradition of memorizing prayers that aren't just our Father and Hail Mary. They're the most fundamental and important prayers we have. They're prayers uh, that enter in the area of exorcism and spiritual protection. But we should be able to 
memorize other prayers, prayers of the Holy Spirit as well. So I'll post that in the episode notes for today's show. Coming back here on Trending with Timory with Sister Tina Alfieri. She's an addiction specialist, a therapist, a hermited nun. Ask a nun your question. The number is 1-888-914-9149. We're going to talk about the healthy perspective on nudity. A teacher in Florida was fired for showing the statue of David uh, to 11 and 12 year olds. I'd love to get your thoughts on nudity. It's an interesting topic. You're listening to Trending with Timory, where you can discuss what matters most to you. Join the conversation, 888-914-9149. I remember when I went to Europe in college with a bunch of classmates, and one of the girls was so excited about one of the museums there in Rome that it was putting on a curated nude art collection exhibit with art from all over the world. I was absolutely horrified. And to me, the whole idea of it was pornographic. I even thought the images promoting it were pornographic. I refused. She tried to drag me and she even bought me a ticket to go to which I said no. I think she liked how much it ruffled my feathers and how uncomfortable I felt about it. Uh, But you know, we all know about Michelangelo's statue of David, the very nude statue uh, that so many people have studied in art, especially Renaissance art, which has a collection of quite a bit of non-sexual nude art, some of which can be sexual as well. Now, it's interesting because you may have followed the story. Uh, This last week, a teacher was fired in Florida for showing a image of the statue of David and other nude Renaissance art, non-sexual Renaissance art, to her students. And it's interesting because they're age 11 to 12. Three parents complained and got the teacher basically forced out and fired uh, from the school. And so here's what's fascinating. I think that this sparks a conversation and I'm not really sure where I stand with it because nude art in general really does make me kind of feel uncomfortable and I'd really prefer just not to see it. But it sparked a huge controversial debate here in the United States and abroad, even Italy weighing in. I mean, the mayor of Florence has been like tweeting all about this the last week. The fact that the Italians are shocked that uh, Americans are just so aghast at even a statue of David uh, that is not in their eyes considered pornographic in any way. And so joining me now to discuss this is Sister Tina Alfieri. She's an addiction specialist. She's a therapist. She especially works with people with addictive disorders. Sister Tina, I would love to open this up for a conversation because I think there's so many questions I have with regard to our mindset regarding nudity today. And is it healthy? What are your initial thoughts on this story? Thank you, Timory. My initial thoughts uh, when I heard and read uh, this news article was myself as an adult, I could not believe that this was being declared pornography by some people. Um, It is a classic, and I believe that the school uh, that this happened in was even a school that focuses on a classical humanities curriculum. Right. So I was really kind of confused about how can you uh, be upset about fantastic, beautiful art uh, that is not sexual, not pornographic. Um, I was very confused by the upset and the uproar over this. I think um, 
you know, I remember back in, the, and I'm dating myself, but I remember back in the 70s when the uh, Supreme Court of the United States was hearing the obscenity um, cases and laws uh, about trying to define what pornography is, what is obscenity, how to know when something is obscene. And one of the famous quotes, I believe it was from Justice Stevens on the Supreme Court was, I can't define pornography, but I know it when I see it. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, the thing is, is that everybody may have a different definition for pornography, but most of us know it when we see it. I think the basic definition for something being pornographic is that it is usually for sexual arousal, sexual excitement, um, and it's to tantalize, to titillate, and to um, have no redeeming value whatsoever. The statue of David certainly does not fall into that category. Um, there are many things that depict sexuality, and I'm not even going to talk about art, but let's talk about medicine, textbooks. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's like, that's not pornography, that's science, that's, you know, having to learn about how body parts function. And so I do think that this was a bit of a tempest in a teapot. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's an interesting topic because I was startled by this, that the teacher would be fired over this, over, you know, the voicing of three parents. Now, one rule that came out just to kind of address the school itself is that they have made a new requirement that parents be notified two weeks before teaching a potentially controversial curriculum and allowing them time to review the material. I think that's great. I think that's important. You know, maybe if you are going to show nude art, maybe, yeah, let parents know ahead of time. Um, You know, I was taken aback as well, and I'm someone who's deeply uncomfortable with the snake. <laughs> statue of David. But here's where my conscience goes, Sister Tina. Okay, one, when I was in Europe, I was immature about it. Everyone made a joke about it, right? I remember the girls sitting there taking photos with it in Europe. I was not. I was just standing there going, can we please get past this part of the exhibit? Mm -hmm. um, but here's mm -hmm. what happens. My conscience immediately reacts and I go, okay, wait. I don't like it. I feel uncomfortable. But my conscience doesn't hit this moment of it's fine because it's not a sexualized image. I would just prefer not to see it. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a difference between preference and what is outright objectification of a human person. Uh, and I think that that's where we're kind of in this weird place, Sister Tina, because I think part of this crisis in our culture with pornography, and I know you work with people who have sexual addiction disorders, mm -hmm. who are addicted to pornography. Do you think we have an unhealthy view of proper nudity and the body in general? Yes, I do. Um, boy, that's a that could be a topic <laughs> in and of itself. I certainly do. Um, sexuality, uh, things that are sexually arousing, uh, tantalizing, titillating, have been used uh, to sell products, to uh, advertise. Uh, again, I'm going to date myself, but there used to be a famous TV beer ad. They had the Swedish bikini team. I mean, so you're linking sexuality, women, uh, alcohol all together. I mean, it's just a mishmash. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's terrible. I think that there is a time and a place for understanding proper modesty, uh, modesty, uh, is wonderful, 
but we can't somehow, if something doesn't meet maybe our standard of modesty, doesn't necessarily make it pornographic. Mm -hmm. We can feel uncomfortable with a nude statue. Some people might feel uncomfortable um, here in my diocese, the Diocese of St. Augustine. Our patroness is Our Lady of La Leche, the nursing Mm -hmm. mother. Mm -hmm. And it's Mary with her breast exposed, nursing Jesus. Some people might feel very uncomfortable with that. But It's not a sexualized image. It is a very natural image, and it's not there to sexualize uh, Mary. It's there to uh, help us understand her role in the life of Jesus as mother, nurturer, and her role in our lives as well. So I think that being uncomfortable doesn't equate with it's pornographic. And unfortunately, I think in this example with the news article coming from my state of Florida, uh, again, I think it was taken way out of context. Yeah, it, it's fascinating to see, especially when you talk about our perspective on nudity. If you're just joining us, Sister Tina Alfieri is a sexual addiction specialist therapist helping people with sexual addictions in particular. So you're weighing in on this topic of the teacher in Florida um, being fired for showing the Statue of David image uh, to students, I think is a really intriguing perspective. And again, the Statue of David makes me feel uncomfortable. <laughs> it's just me, maybe my immaturity. Mm-hmm. I just prefer not. Um, mm-hmm. But I think that you touched on something really important when you talked about, talked about for example, nursing. Um, I'm not a fan of the images of Our Lady of La Leche. If Our Lady is exposed at all, I get mm-hmm. it. I get the perspective on having a holistic view of the body and the purpose. But even nursing, for example, um, a lot of people are uncomfortable if a woman nurses in public while covered. If a woman's mm. covered in nursing, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. And I think the mm-hmm. reason why people are uncomfortable is because they know what's happening. They know what's exposed. But the reality is, is that there should be this respect and honor for having a non-sexualized view of the body and the purpose of nourishment, as you exactly. mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. And when I was talking to your my dear friend Jim O'Day from Integrity Restored, mm-hmm. who works with people with porn addictions, he said to me, he said, Timory, you probably wouldn't be so uncomfortable with the Statue of David if you had little boys. Because you would be more familiar with the exposure, for example, and handling mm-hmm. of, through diaper changes, the male body. And he said, I think that, you know, some of this uh, cringiness with regard to nudity in our culture um, really has to do with the fact that we just don't have healthy relationships and exposure to proper nudity, the natural human body, versus maybe a nurse would um, or mm-hmm. someone who works with art in this way. Mm-hmm. I think you're hitting on some key topics there. I think the only time many people see nudity is in pornography. So they equate nudity with something uh, that is uh, sexualized, uh, that's going to lead to sexual arousal and sexual excitement. And nothing could be further from the truth. I think the statue of David is just absolutely beautiful. I've never seen it in person myself, but how Michelangelo was able to take a hunk of rock and make it into something lifelike is just beyond, uh, it's beautiful. And, you know, again, beside its, its art, it's also a biblical character. So, you know, why are we trying to say that a biblical character is shown in a 
pornographic light. I just don't understand that. I don't understand that leap, how they made the connection. So here's the other part of it. So the this is a group of 11 and 12 year olds. Do you think there is an age appropriate exposure for something such as nude Renaissance art? I do. Now, I will say, I think 11 and 12 is a bit young. Uh, uh, I do think that maybe it might be better if it's like 14, 15, uh, when uh, kids have uh, started having their own sexual changes, they've hit puberty, it might be a bit more uh, not so shocking or surprising uh, to see a nude body because they're uh, nude art because their own bodies are changing. Uh, I do think 11 or 12 might have been a bit young. Uh, I can understand how they would be uncomfortable. Uh, More so immature, again, right? Immature, yeah, immature it. yes. Uh, and the, then, the tittering, the laughing, the giggling, yes. the pointing. It's like, yeah, that's what kids do. Uh, but as we mature and our bodies develop, we become very used to seeing how our bodies look and how bodies look in art and it's just not surprising anymore it's mm -hmm. it's very beautiful i keep thinking about what pope saint john paul ii said in his book love and responsibility when he touches on the issue of pornography he said the problem with pornography isn't that it shows too much he said it's that it shows too little and i think that that's mm. when we came back for example to the woman who's nursing it and covered um you know people know what's happening we should have a rightly ordered understanding rather than mm -hmm. an objectifying understanding of those parts of the woman's body of those mm -hmm. parts of a child's body when you change diapers I, mm -hmm. even it's interesting i was talking uh, the other day to someone when we were discussing this about how Finland historically has had a little more like pro-nude culture, actually a mm -hmm. lot more of a pro-nude culture. Mm -hmm. It makes me feel uncomfortable, but how until this pornographic mindset set in of the last 60 years, um, there wasn't a pornographic dimension of it. They were just more comfortable being around mm -hmm. each other in that way, which Again, I just think is weird, but it goes to show even from like the age of childhood how, you know, my daughter's much more exposed, my two-year-old, um, to her parents, you know, as they're getting dressed mm -hmm. uh, and that's normal to her. She's understanding the body, you know, she, she has a non-sexualized understanding of the body. Yeah, I think there's a certain point where we cut that off when we recognize, okay, kids a little more aware of the body we need to cover up more now um but there needs to be i think missing what's missing is a transition in respecting the body and not fearing or objectifying the body in that transition between a little kid understanding uh, mm -hmm. nudity in a very simplistic way and then let's say a 13 year old understanding nudity in a sexualized way and i guess exactly. my question i don't know if there's an answer is how do we do that in that in-between phase yeah, I'm not uh, an expert on that by any stretch of the imagination. But I do think as Americans, we do get locked into nudity equals sexual activity. We are locked into that combination and we get it from porn. Uh, I loved what you mentioned about Scandinavian countries being more comfortable with just being nude, maybe family members around each other sharing a sauna and things that are very common in their culture. And here in the United States, that would almost never happen. 
That's Sister Tina Alfieri. Such an interesting topic. If you'd like to weigh in on this, I would love to hear your thoughts. I put a post up on social media. Don't worry, a non-nude of David <laughs> asking your thoughts on the whole topic of nudity, whether we have a healthy perspective of it, on it. And I think that is a question. And I'd love to hear from you. Maybe you have ideas. How do we discuss and approach the topic of nudity in the body between ages three and 12 when a kid's no longer maybe seeing their parents um, with less clothing on, but they're not quite into that sexualized dimension of themselves yet, yet they need a healthy understanding of the body. So great question. Lots to discuss. I would love to hear your thoughts on it. So go and check out my post on social media where I open up that discussion. Just follow me at Timmery, T-I-M-M-E-R-I-E. And thank you to Sister Tina Alfieri. Have a wonderful Holy Week, Sister Tina. We'll have you back on in the Easter season. Coming up, we're going to talk about differences between men and women and how important they are to honor in that day-to-day interaction we have with one another. listening to Trending with Timory, where you can discuss what matters most to you. Join the conversation, 888-914-9149. Welcome back to Trending, the last new episode before Easter, because next week Father Rocky will be here during the 4 o'clock Pacific hour, 7 Eastern hour to talk to you about Holy Week and preparing us in that last week of Lent to celebrate the resurrection. Um, So I'll be back with you Easter Monday. Uh, But I want to talk for a moment about honoring the differences of men and women in marriage, in our day-to-day relationships and interactions. Uh, There's so many fascinating pieces of information out there um, that science is confirming what the church says time and time again. The Catechism of the Catholic Church, and we'll put these paragraphs in the episode notes for you to read because I think there's something to ponder. All of us should really ponder what this means in our lives. But the Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraphs 2332 and 2333, talk about how sexuality affects all aspects of the human person in the unity of our body and soul. It especially concerns our harmony with it one another. Society um, depends on this. And that is the differences between men and women in our acceptance of those. And the fact that, did you hear what the catechism said? The catechism says it affects all aspects of the human person, including our soul, our minds, our bodies, all of it. So let's dive into a little bit of neuroscience because I think it is absolutely riveting to ponder how even neuroscientists today, if you didn't know this, are being called neurosexists because time and time again, unintentionally, they're going in and finding the differences between men and women are written into every single cell of the human brain. So one example to start off with is if you go in and do an MRI, um, the process, um, the processing differences between men and women are fascinating. Uh, the processing differences of the brain, there are more connections in each hemisphere for a man. So for example, each hemisphere is separate and those hemispheres, he either stays in one and connects back and forth within the same hemisphere Unlike a woman, a woman has more connections across hemispheres. So, for example, the logical and the creative side of the brain, right? The left and right side of the brain. She can go back and forth making connections between the two sides versus for a man, he goes out one door to go into the other. The connections are not across as often. Now, this is seen on the level of brain scans and doing an MRI. It's fascinating because it touches on that singular focus that's a gift of men. It allows them to compartmentalize, focus on their responsibilities, and 
You know, especially when you see, for example, their ability to focus on work, the important ability to focus on work and detach and separate from the family. They're doing it for the family, but their brain's not sitting here clicking and going, thinking about all the things that need to be done at home. Yet for a woman, this is part of the stress of women in the 21st century of being a part of the workforce is that a woman is still doing all those tasks that she did before from cooking, from cleaning, um, And even if she's not doing them herself, she's still tasked with those responsibilities. It goes back to the fact that a woman's brain is still going to connect and process and think about all of those things. Um, And it's interesting because we're seeing for women, women today compared to 1960 are extremely stressed out and overwhelmed. And it's in part because of the MRI differences that points to the fact that women have more connections across the different sides of their brains, taking on more responsibilities in these different areas of connection in their lives and the lives of those entrusted to them. Uh, so that's kind of a fascinating area that even just talks, I think, to the paradox of women that were quote unquote freer than ever um, from shackles of fertility, ability to achieve in the workforce and careers that were more, but we are more stressed out. Um, these brain scans point to that nourishing dimension of a woman in that provider dimension of the man. It's fascinating to see these biological uh, differences in studies such as that and how it comes back to that nurturing for a woman and that provision, that that responsibility, that protection side of the man. Now, sex differences when neuroscientists are looking at them, are really striking for many neuroscientists. Uh, There's a medical journal called Cerebrum. Larry Carhill, he's a PhD professor of neurobiology and behavior, and wrote about sex differences between men and women in the brain. Now, he started to do some research a handful of years ago, and he expected to go in studying the hypothalamus, which regulates sexual behavior and hormones, and he thought that the only influence that sex differences would have literally would have to do with sexual interaction and hormones. But here's what he found. He said, I was assuming that men and women shared anything that was fundamental on the level of the brain. But crucially, he realized something that we've known and seen in animals for years and acknowledged in animals, we also see in men and women. So what's been known for years, yet scientists, neuroscientists have refused to acknowledge, is that animal research has always clearly demonstrated that in the brains of male versus female animals, that the brains are filled with sex differences and influences that are there. And scientists have known this. But when you turn and look specifically at the human brain, scientists want to say, no, the only thing that's different is any regulation of hormone and sexual complementarity in terms of interaction with the bodies. So here's what's fascinating. You come back to the study in Cerebrum by PhD Larry Cahill. He's sitting there looking at this saying, I only thought those were the type of influences that we would see, but I was wrong. He ended up discovering that there were sex differences, male and female differences on all areas of the brain, even in the molecular ion channel. Now, what's so riveting about all of this is that they saw that this was completely unanticipated. This is not what they intended to prove in the study, and it's not what they intended to discuss. The bottom line is, is that the differences between male and female brains are shocking scientists and neuroscientists. They have a choice. They can completely ignore it, 
and not talk about it, not publish the studies, or they can acknowledge it and be in absolute awe and wonder over the differences between men and women. And the studies that neuroscientists are diving into even show differences in terms of aging and brain disease and how men versus women age and enter into these brain diseases different from one another based on whether they're male or female. Just a fun or funny study that I remember learning years ago that appeals to the humanity, that person, that personality of the child, and even male-female differences in the womb. Scientists in Northern Ireland many years ago discovered that female babies in utero actually begin moving their mouths much earlier than male babies in utero. In other words, Girl babies start getting ready to chat a lot earlier when they are in the womb. They are warming up. I laugh telling this to my husband, who's now a girl dad of two girls. Uh, The talking just keeps growing. I was thinking about it the other day. You know, what's going to happen when it's not just my two-year-old who can babble and talk all day and share her thoughts, but also our second baby. It'll be a very loud house with these two girls uh, chatting all of the time. But I think that when we look at these differences, um, you even have examples of Ambien, which is a very common um, medication for sleeping. Uh, Most prescription drugs such as that are usually only tested on male bodies. And so dosages are given the same for men versus women, sometimes different based on weight. Uh, But what they found is that it wasn't based on weight or height or anything such as that, that the drug Ambien and its generic version, that it was actually leaving women... Only women, not men, basically drugged the next day and under the influence when it came to driving, they were had impaired driving all because of the way the brain was reacting to this drug, not based on weight or height or anything like that, but based on how the male brain versus the female brain responds. These are fascinating. It goes to point to the differences that are written into our pain receptors, liver enzymes, and the wiring of the brain honoring what the church says that we are created male or female and you can't manipulate and change the body to change who you are to the core of that maleness or femaleness.